This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, the critical importance of having COVID vaccination targets to achieve pandemic prevention and control in Australia. And what should those targets be right now, particularly with a limited supply? And there are about 5,000 preterm births prior to 32 weeks gestation in Australia each year. And the developmental outcomes of these kids is becoming clear and the long-standing concerns of parents are being borne out. So we're going to hear from a parent and a researcher who has followed over 4,000 of these kids to age five. Speaking of kids, a respiratory condition of babies, which is a common reason for them, in fact, the commonest reason for having to be admitted to hospital. How best to treat it? Because we don't do that well at the moment. And how do we exit from this pandemic? It's a question asked since the beginning, and the promise has always been that vaccines are the way out. If Australia had met its original COVID vaccine targets, around 6 million Australians would have had their first dose by now. According to the ABC's data journalists, the number is less than half of that. And the federal government is resisting setting new targets for mass vaccination, given the limited supply. But we've been told that the motivation to be immunised is to protect ourselves, our families and the community and allow Australia to open up again. A prospect that, according to the federal treasurer, is a year away. The Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales has modelled how we could best deploy our limited supply of vaccines for maximal effect. Professor Raina McIntyre led the research, which has just been published in a major international journal. Raina heads the biosecurity programme at the Kirby. Welcome back to the Health Report, Raina. Good evening, Norman. Can you say like, the parameters of the modelling, what you're looking for in terms of targets for what benefit did you build into your model? So we looked at New South Wales as an example with a hypothetical epidemic that starts with 100 cases a day, which is sort of, you know, for example, in Victoria last year, there were 700 plus cases a day at the peak of that epidemic. So, it's a, you know, substantial epidemic. And then we looked at what if you've only got a million doses of vaccine for seven and a half million people versus what if you had a full supply and could vaccinate everyone? So um, in the limited supply, we looked at the usual ways of targeting, which is giving it to particular age groups, and we compared younger people versus older people. Um, we take it as a, took it as a given that you have to vaccinate health workers and other first responders, and really none of those targeted strategies will control the epidemic. None? Yeah. So what do you get for your money in, in those well, strategies? Uh, we don't yet know whether the COVID vaccines work as post-exposure prophylaxis, which is where you do your you have an outbreak, you trace the contacts, and you you vaccinate people who are contacts and therefore exposed potentially to the virus. So this is called ring vaccination. It's what they did to control yeah. the smallpox pandemic and epidemic in the, in the end. That's right. Yeah, in the end, they they just couldn't achieve mass vaccination in some countries, notably India. Um, and so they switched to this ring vaccination strategy, which is, which is essentially tr contact tracing and vaccination of the contacts. And in that case, the smallpox vaccine efficacy dropped from, you know, about 95% to about 50%. So uh, it, the efficacy was halved, but it was still enough to actually eradicate smallpox. We can't eradicate SARS-CoV-2 for various reasons, but... Um, the vaccine may well have some effectiveness in that way. And if there is an outbreak, then that is a good way to use a limited supply until we know. You know, Australia is in a good position to actually study this and 
collect data because we haven't been overwhelmed by large epidemics. And so... Um, so the, the current vaccine, we'll come to the... Well, I don't want to cut you out of talking about the modelling, but the current vaccination strategy actually does say that ring vaccination is part of it, but it doesn't seem to have been implemented anywhere in Australia at the moment when you've had, say... Um, for example, like the current one in New South Wales is probably not a good one to take, but you know the Queensland outbreak and so on, that there have been opportunities with very small outbreaks to do ring vaccination, but it doesn't seem to have happened. Um, I think I've seen, I've read somewhere that New South Wales Health is planning on doing it. So, you know, we'll wait and see. Eventually there will be studies, there will be publications, research showing whether or not it works. But Generally speaking, the principle is if a virus has a very short incubation period, ring vaccination probably won't work so well. But if it's got a long incubation period, which SARS-CoV-2 does, it may well have some effectiveness. What, so so what, what we're doing at the moment is a targeted, semi-targeted strategy where we're in it with a limited supply. As, as near as you're able to, with what we're doing now, what is, does your modelling inform where we're going to get to with what we've got now with what vaccines? Because we keep on talking or, or people have stopped talking about herd immunity as if that's not a target anymore. Just unpick that for us and take us through it. Well, I think if, if we're going to, at the current time where we've got limited vaccination, we can protect people who are most at risk of dying of COVID or most at risk of being exposed to it, which is your frontline workers and your older people particularly in aged care facilities. But if, an, if, if a large outbreak happens, that's not enough to control it, essentially. To control it, maybe you can use ring vaccination, but otherwise mass vaccination is the only thing that's going to control it. And for that to happen, for mass vaccination to happen, you need an adequate supply. And you also need to achieve very high rates of coverage, as in um, you know, rates of vaccination in the population very quickly. If it's a very, what we showed also was that if you have a slow trickle approach where it takes years, you know, maybe two years, three years to achieve um, high rates of vaccination, you just, we're just going to be living with um, periodic lockdowns and restrictions um, and risk of outbreaks for much longer. And risk of vaccine resistance? I mean, could it be that is it a bit like antibiotics where you don't give enough and it gives an opportunity for vaccine resistance to emerge because you want to get partial coverage? No, really, it's quite, it's different to antibiotics. You know, antibiotic resistance arises usually, uh, you know, secondary resistance, which is the most common type, arises in an infected host. They've got the, the virus, the bacteria or virus in them, and then they have the drug. So, uh, and that actually then, you know, exerts selective pressure for um for, for the emergence of resistant organisms. This is different because a vaccine prevents infection. It's not treating infection. How, um, many, how many doses a day would have to be administered if you're using your New South Wales model with what kind of vaccine to get herd immunity? So I think anything from 60,000 doses above will get you um, to, to very fast coverage of most of the population. Uh, we're nowhere near that now. I think, you know, at best we're maybe doing 60,000 doses a week. Um, if you can do 300,000 doses a day, even better. You know, that would give you very fast uptake. The speed of how, how of vaccination matters as well. 
And to do that, of course, you know, we need the hubs are a really great thing that have um, started in several states, um, that plus enabling all the GPs to vaccinate. So at the moment, GPs are only getting some, many GPs are only getting 50 doses a week. And that is, um, a, a, it's a roadblock, you know, in the sense that GPs often have thousands of patients who want to be vaccinated and they can't vaccinate them because they don't, they don't have enough vaccine. So your point is when supply improves, and we can unpick that one a lot, um, it's worth the prize. Yeah, yeah. And we need to really enable GPs. I think in the end we're going to need the hubs and GPs fully enabled because we've done some research, some separate research on flu vaccine, looking at where people get vaccinated, whether they get it at the pharmacy, in the shopping centre or at the GP. And there's a strong preference of people sort of over the age of 50 to 60 to be vaccinated by their GP. Um, so for older adults, I think it's really important that they can be vaccinated by their GP. So we need to re-examine re targets. Rhina, thank you. It's a pleasure. Rhina McIntyre is Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. This is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. The first few weeks of a premature baby's life can be terrifying. They're so tiny and vulnerable, and it's a huge relief to see them growing bigger and stronger and seemingly catching up to their peers who were born full term. But research is showing that many kids who were born preterm can end up with developmental problems. Alison Shen's daughter, Sophia, was born at 25 and a half weeks, weighing just 830 grams. And while Alison and her husband had been warned that preemie babies sometimes have ongoing issues, it wasn't actually until the year before Sophia started school that the complex gaps in her development became clear. We didn't know the hearing loss. We noticed the speech delay and her lack of understanding, just what people were saying or direction. It was a shock. So she has moderate sensorineural hearing loss on the left side. Just simple sounds like she and he. She's never heard the sh before it. When she went to kindy, that's when you sort of notice that other kids can actually verbalise, talk and play, role play, and she couldn't. So she got left behind and a lot of kids didn't want to play with her because she didn't understand what they wanted her to do, whether it was, you know, play mummy and daddies or go hide under a tree. And so she started to develop sort of behavioural things from being quite overwhelmed and not understanding. So she'd play by herself, but she wouldn't play with the kids. In school, the concentration was really bad. You know, a couple of times I got a call saying, you know, we think she's sick. She sort of slumped over the table. She doesn't look well. And I'll go pick her up in a hurry and bring her to the GP. And the GP would say, oh, there's nothing wrong with her. When I brought her to the psychologist eventually, she was the one who said to me, imagine if you're in a classroom for that many hours a day and someone's speaking to you in French and you just don't get it. She's, she said to me, she's actually just given up. Alison sought out a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist and other specialists. And I just needed someone to be able to put all those reports together and just go, yes, that, that's what it is. And this is what you've got to do to help her. And I felt very alone at that time. So for her, she's sensory seeking. You know, the ones that sort of like to jump off high furniture or swing on swings and do sort of run around the house like crazy. And it's almost like she needed to wake herself up. But because she also had the hearing loss and the she has also astigmatism and, and long-sightedness. She kept doing things like bumping into walls on the same side of her head, and I didn't actually realise why. It would go to the shopping centre and it was very noisy and I would shout out her name. She wouldn't even hear me and people would go, oh, she's just being naughty. And then it was only when I put all of them together, I sort of went, actually, no. 
this is actually what it all, it all is. Once all the puzzle pieces came together, Sophia blossomed. She's had support now for speech and learning since she was three. She wears a hearing aid, she wears glasses. She gets support in class and she's a completely different child now. She's happy, she talks a lot about her friends. She comes home from school and she's chatty. She's not moody and not wanting to talk to me. She has friends, actual proper friends now that, you know, run and want to see her in the playground. So such a big difference. Alison is part of a study at the University of Queensland that's looking to develop resources to help parents navigate the complex needs that Premier kids can have when it comes to starting school. We've got a lot of friends that went through NICU. I feel like they're the only ones that understand. And I just get to that point where I just call them up and I go, I'm just so sick of fighting. Because it feels like if you don't, then your child will suffer. And the only one that can fight for your child is you because she literally didn't have a voice. And it just gets exhausting. I think people don't realise because, you know, they come out of NICU and they survive. And, you know, everyone's like, look at her, she's amazing, she's a miracle, you know, she's, you know, look at her, she's so tall. You're proud of that because, you know, there were points in her NICU journey that we thought would never take her home, would never come home with a baby. But also people don't see there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Because unfortunately with these premies, there's a lot of different pieces and they often do relate, like behaviour is often related to the fact that they can't communicate. Concentration and hyperactivity is often because of frustration and again, not being able to communicate. And people put it down to, oh, you know, she's got this or she's got this, when actually it's just, they just are developmentally delayed. So that's Brisbane mum, Alison Shen, whose daughter Sophia was born prematurely. Thanks, Tegan. So what do the data show about the kinds of problems that Alison and Tegan were talking about? And it's a significant issue. Well over 5,000 preterm babies are born in Australia each year who are six weeks or more premature and therefore need intensive neonatal, neonatal care to some extent. A French group have followed over 4,000 children who were born at a gestation of 34 weeks or less through to the age of five. The lead author was Dr. Veronique Pirat, who is a neonatologist and researcher at L'Hôpital Tenon in Paris. Welcome to the Health Report, Veronique. Welcome. Uh, hello. Thanks for Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. So what outcomes were you looking for in these children that you followed through? So we have tried to, to have a, a quite big overview of their development at five years of age. And uh, we have looked at uh, motor development, cognitive development, and behavior. And uh, we put all this in perspective with the, the interventions these children need and with their school outcome. I mean, obviously, behavioral issues is, are often what bothers parents the most. Oh, yes. And... Uh, well, it was not really a surprise, but um, the surprise was um, the high level of uh, parents uh, who were, um, well, who were, uh, who had difficulties with the behavior. And we, we really need that uh, this uh, needs to be um, better acknowledged and uh, understood. So let's just go through it, though, double back a little bit. What, what did you find when you followed through these 4,000 children? Well, we have found that, well, first of all, a great proportion of them had a normal development, but there is still quite a high burden of prematurity. And, um, well, the level of uh, impairment is still high. And we have tried to concentrate off on... Uh, what is usually called um, 
um, minor difficulties because we believe that these difficulties are not minor for parents and children. And uh, approximately one third of these children, whatever their gestational age at birth, had minor difficulties. And uh, a high proportion of them didn't have any support to help them to go through these difficulties. What predicted poor outcomes? Um, was it just how premature they were? What, what other factors were involved? Well, of course, this age was uh, associated with, um, with uh, later development. But, um, so in other words, the more premature, um, the more likely you were to have problems? Yes, yes. Um, but, well, this is well known, but, um, and it is also well known that uh, the most difficulties parents have, um, the most uh, social disadvantage they have, and uh, the more uh, the child has problems. But, uh, well, I think it's very important to highlight this, um, well, more and more, well, every every time, because these parents need support because it's very difficult to have a, a premature child. So poor, so poor socioeconomic status was, was, a, was a predictor, which is a predictor of prematurity as well. Um, what is it about socioeconomic status? Is it predicting prematurity and therefore poor outcome, or is it complicated because of deprivation after birth? Well, it's both, I think. But also, um, well, at least in France, I don't know exactly in Australia, but uh, in France it's not very easy to have access to to um, intervention, for example, intervention to support development after uh, after discharge. Well, it is um, well, it is possible, but the number of places available for children is too low. And so the most uh, difficulties you you have, the most difficult it is to 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 have this intervention. And uh, well, it's also a cost. Uh, well, for example, uh, in the hospital, if you leave at uh, I don't know um, thirty hundred uh, thirty kilometers from the hospital, and if you want to come every day to see your child, it's a cost. So, well, um, social disadvantage is uh, amplifying the difficulties of prematurity. But I think it's not. Um, well, it's not fixed. We can do something to help these people. That was my that was my next question. I mean, obviously, you can improve neonatal intensive care. You can improve the prevention of preterm babies. We've covered that in Australia, where there is there are quite successful interventions which can reduce preterm birth. But let's assume mm-hmm. the baby's been born, gets out of hospital. Are there interven- Do we know what interventions work in terms of giving the baby a better trajectory? Well, well, there are very nice um, uh, data from Australian again about uh, well uh, on this question. But uh, post discharge intervention, including parents, are more helpful and have more success to to help these children. And I think we also have to better recognise um, the difficulties for parents because um, there is a high level of uh, post-traumatic stress disorders in parents or, or depression, and uh, we have to recognise this and uh, help parents. So what's and this will help the development of the child. 
So what you're arguing is that we, whilst the child needs to be focused on, the parents often get missed. Well, yes, they were. Well, there, there are more and more uh, research now uh, on the, the, the influence or the impact of, of prematurity on parents. And it's very good because uh, I think we, we will have um, well, more uh, data to uh, improve the outcome of the children. And parents uh, know what are the questions uh, and uh, they have to help us to, well, we have to go to, to ask them uh, what could be the Richard question. I think it's very important to involve parents in the, well, at least in Richard, but also in the, um, in the care of these babies. It's a huge issue. Um, and thanks for helping us understand it better. Okay, thank you very much. Dr. Veronique Perrat is a neonatologist and researcher at L'Hôpital Tenon in Paris. Let's stay with babies because in a country like Australia, the commonest reason for a baby under 12 months to, to be admitted to hospital is a viral respiratory condition called bronchiolitis. Obviously, the severity can vary, but the baby can really struggle with their breathing and become seriously distressed. The trouble is, according to a recently published paper, that even in our best paediatric centres, there are unacceptable variations in the care of babies with bronchiolitis. That's why Australian, New Zealand and Canadian researchers have carried out a trial to see how to raise the standard of care to match the evidence and guidelines. One of the group was Ed Oakley, who's Professor of Paediatric Critical Care and Emergency Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Ed. Uh, thanks very much, Norman. Now, you could do much better describing bronchiolitis than I've just done, given that I've been out of the game for so long. Yeah, look, you're essentially correct, Norman. Bronchiolitis is a respiratory illness in infants. Uh, it, it affects the very small breathing pipes in the lungs. It causes difficulty with the lungs. So the babies breathe quickly, their chest sucks in, they have difficulty feeding and they may need oxygen to, to assist them. So that's what the disease looks like. And it's caused by a virus, the respiratory yeah. syncytial virus, yeah. Yes, it's, it's about 50% caused by the respiratory syncytial virus and 50% by groups, groups of other viruses. And why do some babies get it and not others with the same infection? Do we know yeah, the answer? That, that's a good question. There are a number of risk factors for children to get more serious illness. Bronchiolitis can be a very mild illness in some. In some, it's a, a serious and potentially life-threatening threatening illness. There are a series of risk factors such as... Uh, Parents that smoke in, uh, in the household, such as previous prematurity, um, cardiac uh, issues in the baby. Um, so there's a number of risk factors. Also, being indigenous uh, from whichever country you're in is a risk factor for more serious illness. Now, the, the, the premise of your paper is that there's a lot of what's called low-value care going on in bronchiolitis, which means hospitals, paediatricians are doing stuff that's just a waste of time and money and maybe even harmful. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've known for some time, and there are a large number of international guidelines look, that, that assess the literature that tell us that there are a number of interventions that are frequently made. And in Australia, 
they're made in, depending on where you work, in 25 to 50% of babies will get one of these interventions such that as? we know doesn't help, um, such as they get um, inhalers, so puffers that we would use for asthma, such as uh, salbutamol or Ventolin uh, or adrenaline or um, atrovent, ipratropium bromide, um, or they would get routine chest x-rays, which are also un, uh, unnecessary. Okay, so, and what's the right treatment? Look, the, the evidence we have to date that the treatment we have that works is supportive care. So we need to actively manage the So let the, the baby child. heal him or herself and just give oxygen if the baby needs it and that sort of thing? Yeah, good nursing care and good, good care to help the parent uh, look after the child um, feeding if necessary. Sometimes they need assistance with feeding, so whether that be intravenously or via a nasogastric tube to assist with the feeding and oxygen if necessary. And obviously in the more severe cases, other me other measures to help the, the child breathe. And no antibiotics? No, correct. Antibiotics have been shown not to be helpful in, in any population. So you were trying to reorient 26 hospitals towards more a higher value care, in other words, towards that kind of treatment. What did you do? Yes, and as has been shown many times, it can take many years to, to trans, translate research into evidence in, or into clinical practice. So we took 26 hospitals, half of them we just gave the guideline and said, you can go away and do what you would usually do with this information. The other half... Which is we got, prop up the door with it or something, you know, prop open the door well, with it usually. Yes, we didn't actually ask them what they did, but yes, that could, it may well be nothing useful, correct. Um, the other half we partnered with and we had a series of interventions, including um, people from their paediatric ward and their emergency department, doctors and nurses who became champions. Um, or leaders at that institution, we worked with them to develop uh, educational materials that they could use that were targeted at the medical staff, but also targeted at the parents. Because we, we've realised that one of the drivers for some of the interventions is the parental expectation that we would do some of these tests and so on or give some of this medication. So we, we did that and we provided with them with feedback along the way. We measured how they were going, provided them with feedback over the year of the intervention and uh, allowed them to compare themselves with the other 13 intervention hospitals. Which has been shown to be quite an effective way of improving that. So you don't threaten them in a confidential way. You say, well, you're, you're doing well or you're behind the average compared to the rest of the hospitals. So yeah, that's right. It, it provides incentive and, and, and encouragement. And what were the results? Yeah, the results showed that the, the 13 hospitals there where we made the intervention improved their care about 14% more than the, uh, the non-intervention hospitals. So our previous research had showed that the baseline was around about 50% of children getting this, that one of these, these interventions. Um, during the study, we actually found that probably only about 30% of the children were getting the intervention, so there'd been some improvement already. But on top of that, we were able to make a 14% better improvement by having these targeted interventions, um, which is probably at the upper limit of other research showing... And did the babies do better? Uh, look, the babies all, in both groups, the babies did 
well. The length of stay in hospital was pretty much the same. So they didn't do better, but they certainly didn't do any worse. It's, look, it seems extraordinary that you've got to do that with highly trained people who've passed their medical and nursing degrees, that you've got to do all this to get the right treatment. Yes, and you know, I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking, why do we have to do this? But when people are used to doing something and it's been part of the care for a long time, getting people to stop doing something, especially when we're asking them to stop making interventions in, in most of the things that they've been doing for this it is actually difficult. And we needed to um, frame it in the way of, we don't want you not to do anything, we just want you to do something different. And so we had to frame it that we didn't not just stop, but actually what we need to do is support the, the child and the family. Let's hope it sustains itself. Thanks, Ed. No, thanks very much. Our next project is to see if we can sustain it. Well, good. We'll get you back. Yeah, no worries. Professor Ed Oakley is Chief of Critical Care and an Emergency Physician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. So quite an extraordinary effort there, Tegan, to get evidence-based care in place. Yeah, and so important because bronchiolitis can be really, really terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. It's not what you want a kid to have. Well, it's time for our mailbag segment, Norman. And of course, if you're listening to this, good on you for sticking with us. And you can send in your questions and comments to healthreport at abc.net.au. And let's start with a comment from Alice Norman. Uh, She's heard us talk about antipsychotics and weight gain on the health report, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Alice says she has schizophrenia and has taken a few different medications. And between three that she mentions, she's gained between 25 and 40 kilos, which puts her in the obese category now, even though before she was on these medications, she was sedentary but hadn't gained much weight. And her experience of the medication is that she does not feel any hungrier than she did before before getting sick, doesn't think she's eating anymore and thinks that it might be actually changes on the metabolism. She wants us to communicate this as a possibility because us uh, makes the point that blaming diet and exercise makes it sound like something schizophrenics can control, whereas in fact she's doing everything she can. She's still obese and feels like she's putting her physical health at risk. I don't like having to choose between my mental and physical health, says Alice. No, it's a really tough one and, um, you know, and you can have a conversation with your psychiatrist about whether or not there are. There are some what are called atypical antipsychotics, which I think have less weight gain attached to them and, um, and worth talking. But it, you know, it is important to control the symptoms of schizophrenia so that you can get back to as normal a life as you can and work and so on. A lot of people do go through recovery, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the health report with uh, Pat McGorry and deal with that first and foremost. But uh, this, is a, this is an important issue. Mm. And Deborah's written in a couple of questions, actually, but the first one is about the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it's one that we have heard from a lot of people, and I think the answer bears repeating. So Deborah says, after various media reports relating to the risk of blood clots after receiving AstraZeneca, would it be wise to take aspirin daily for a few weeks after inoculation? And also, why are the under 50s more at risk than those over 50? Let's start with the last one first. Nobody really knows why it's the under 50s rather than the over 50s, and women more than men, although... As time goes on, the balance between the, the, the genders is roughly is, is probably going to be more even, probably a little bit biased towards women. It's probably um, a more active immune system. Essentially, your immune system is healthier the younger you are, and you're just you're getting a strong immune response. And women's immune systems are more prone to a kind of autoimmune response than men's. Although there's no evidence that people with autoimmune disease are more at risk of this rare problem. 
The issue of aspirin, as you say, Tegan, we're getting asked that a lot, particularly on Coronacast. And the current advice is no. So the first thing I'll say is if you're already on aspirin, low-dose aspirin, you've had a heart attack, you've had angina, you've had a stent or you've had a temporary stroke or something like that, then you must continue on it because there's no question about the benefit. But to start it in the hope that this might do something to prevent this condition is a mistake. And there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that aspirin has side effects and therefore it's got to be worth taking in its own right. Secondly, the clotting problem with this, although it is platelets, is an immune phenomenon and you've got to treat it as an immune phenomenon rather than a clotting problem and therefore aspirin is unlikely to have any effect on this clotting problem. And in fact, the way it's being treated now is actually not to deal with the clotting problem as a clotting problem, but to deal with an immune problem by giving you antibodies and uh, maybe even high-dose steroids. And the third reason, or fourth, or I haven't kind of really mm-hmm. got through yet, to aspirin is that there's a paradox in this rare problem. The paradox is, which everybody listening kind of knows now, is that you've got blood clotting in the presence of low platelets. You need platelets for blood clotting, and paradoxically, you get low platelets in this. And that's because the antibodies make the platelets more sticky, but also reduce the number of platelets. And paradoxically, not only are you at risk of blood clotting with this condition, TTS, you're also at risk of hemorrhage because of low platelets. And aspirin theoretically could increase that risk of hemorrhage. So those are the reasons why keep the aspirin on the shelf. And allow me to make a shameless plug for our other podcast at this juncture. If you're not listening to Coronacast already, you'll love it because you're listening to Norman and me answering your questions about the coronavirus. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. But another question for you from Deborah Norman. Um, She's asking about silica in makeup. We hear stories about people with silicosis due to exposure of silica in the workplace. A lot of makeup, especially loose powder, contains silica. Should we be avoiding it? There has been an issue with talcum powder and women using it sort of for feminine hygiene and some people are arguing that there's a relationship between the use of talcum powder and ovarian cancer because it gets, it works its way up through the fallopian tubes. Controversial, but there, there may be a link there. So that's talcum powder. But silica in cosmetics is not always in a powder form. Yes, there, you know, you're powdering your face and so on and using foundation. You know, whether you're actually inhaling enough of it to cause a problem The other issue is that when you hear the silicosis problem in industry, it's with a particular form of composite stone, that's artificial composite stone that's been used to make kitchen tops. So marble doesn't, the sort of silica that comes off marble does not seem to cause the problem to the same extent. So it's this artificial aggregate, if you like, that's, that's causing the problem. So nobody knows whether there's risk with makeup itself, but it's unlikely you're getting sufficient dosage there. Yeah, it feels like the volume that you'd be breathing in if you were working with stone is so many more times than what you'd be powdering on your nose. Yeah. And one last question from Sarah Norman, uh, who starts by saying, love the show. Love you, Sarah. Uh, Sarah's about to embark on on an expensive venture braces for her 13-year-old. Dentists and orthodontists insist that braces improve the chance of keeping your teeth longer, and we are living long lives these days. And of course, Sarah wants her kids to have good, strong teeth, but she doesn't care so much what they look like. Are the orthodontists speaking the truth, or do they just want her money? 
Well, I can probably guarantee that there's not a lot of long-term evidence to support or refute that comment. I think that what they're talking about is that if you have a very crowded mouth with a lot of teeth that are crossing over, dental hygiene becomes really important. So interdental flossing, those interdental brushes, flossing and so on, so that you actually do keep good care of your teeth. But again, if you're brushing regularly, got good dental hygiene, you're using fluoride toothpaste, if you've got issues, then you get a fluoride application on your teeth and you don't mind what it looks like, then, uh, you know, why put a 13-year-old and, uh, you know, create a second mortgage for yourself with an <laughs> orthodontist? But, you know, sometimes th- there is an issue with a cosmetic effect. You know, for example, I've lived all my life with a crowded mouth and I think that my problems with dental care are more to do with growing up in Glasgow with a terrible diet than my crowded mouth. Am I right in thinking that also if you get braces when you're younger, your teeth are more likely to stay in place, but if you get them when you're older, they might drift back? I don't know the answer to that question, Um, but certainly there's a lot of orthodontics that's done later in life. And, you know, I suspect well done done by a good orthodontist, you probably do get a long-lasting effect, but I, I don't know for sure. Well, if you know or if you have a question, you can email us. The email address again is healthreport at abc.net.au. I will see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.